Well, MSG is uh, an acronym that's used quite a bit in the culinary world today. It stands for something like monosodium glue something. Uh, oh. <laughs> Those who have uh, been on certain diets know this term, I guess. Uh, and it's kind of a secret ingredient. If you ask somebody what does MSG do, you don't really get a lot of solid answers other than it makes things taste better. It's something that gets thrown in. You don't really uh, detect a unique taste about it. It kind of enhances everything else, and it's a bit mysterious in that way. Um, but I'm not talking about that MSG today. Uh, talking about a different kind of MSG, uh, an ingredient you could say that God used in first building His church, MSG standing for miraculous sign gifts. And uh, this topic, too, is often surrounded with great mystery and understanding how those gifts worked in the first century, if those gifts are to be in function today in the church, and if so, how. It causes a lot of conversation. I tackled this subject pretty early on in my Christian life. I've probably mentioned to you before when I went to go buy my first study Bible. I went to the local bookstore in my hometown in central Missouri, and I knew it was owned by a couple that went to a more charismatic type church, a church unlike the one I was attending. And I found on the shelf a New King James Version, because that's what I was familiar with, of the life application or spirit-filled Bible, something to that effect. And I flipped through and I thought, okay, it looks pretty good. The editor was Dr. Jack Hayford. I didn't know that name at the time, but pulled it off the shelf. And the bookstore owner, knowing my story that I came to know the Lord and what church I was going to, as I was checking out, he asked me if I knew much about that Bible. And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, you might encounter some things in the notes there that are a bit different from the church you attend. But went ahead and bought it anyway, and it wasn't too long before I realized exactly what he was talking about and worked through some of those issues. Uh, later on in my Christian life, perhaps even just a year after that or so, I was asked by that bookstore owner and his wife to go with them to record something on video. I was very much into film editing. In fact, before I felt uh, led into Christian ministry, I was going to go to a film editing school in Burbank, California. That's what I wanted to do. And so anyway, they knew that I had that hobby, and they invited me to come along and record uh, a snippet, uh, an interview with a man that they knew who was miraculously healed. And so I went along, and I still remember the man's name, Ed Munson. He was an older man who had very poor vision. I can't remember if he was supposedly blind or if it was just very poor. And he was healed through a miraculous handkerchief. And so there I was with my camera and the audio and all that and recorded it, cut it up and sent it back to him so he could share it with his church. And I remember on the car ride back after filming that, I was with this pastor and his wife and she knew that I liked that hymn, There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. And the refrain in that hymn says, Thank you, O my Father, for sending us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. And she, knowing that I liked that song, said, Well, what do you think He left His Spirit here for? That's an interesting question to ask a teenage Christian who's only been a Christian for about a year or two. And so I fumbled my way through an answer, but of course her point was, there's more to this Christian life than your church has been teaching you. There are more exercises from the Holy Spirit that you could be performing. And that church that I got saved in and went to there in central Missouri has had its own rounds with this issue. 
And even in somewhat recent history, there have been families who have left that church over this issue. And so I want to take my time today and be careful with this and define terms rightly and show you from Scripture why this church takes the stand that we do. And if you are taking notes, you see the first heading there today is that miraculous sign gifts served their purpose. Now, that statement in and of itself is pretty big. We're speaking in past tense. Those gifts served in the past their purpose. And we'll start with some definitions. First is the definition of the word cessationism. Cessationism, not secessionism. We're not talking today about seceding from the union as a church or anything like that, but cessationism. And it's not in reference to the ceasing of the Holy Spirit or the ceasing of miracles, but that word cessationism is in reference to the ceasing of the Holy Spirit's distribution of miraculous sign gifts to believers in the church. The ceasing of the Holy Spirit's distribution of miraculous sign gifts to believers in the church. Now, that, of course, begs the question, what are these miraculous sign gifts? Perhaps you've not heard those three words put together in that order before, miraculous sign gifts. Well, let me give you a definition for that, for that kind of MSG. (laughs) Miraculous sign gifts are the defining gifts of an apostle, the defining gifts of an apostle that some others in the first century were also given. Now, these gifts are generally described in the Bible under the category of signs and wonders. You'll see not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, signs and wonders brought up throughout uh, the Scriptures as a catch-all term for miraculous signs being done, miraculous performances of God's power through human beings. Miraculous sign gifts are thoroughly supernatural by classification, thoroughly supernatural in the way that they're classified. Now, there's, of course, a sense in which the whole Christian life is supernatural, but these, through and through, are supernatural gifts. Let me read to you from our doctrinal statement. This is the Orchard Hills Bible Church doctrinal statement on what we say about these gifts. We believe that the church age was initiated through the ministry of the apostles and prophets, accompanied by sign gifts to confirm their message. These sign gifts gradually ceased by the time of the completion of the New Testament. And I'll read you another statement. This is from an organization I'm a part of, the IFCA. They phrase it this way. It's very similar, but a little different. We believe that God is sovereign in the bestowment of all His gifts and that the gifts of evangelists, pastors, and teachers are sufficient for the perfecting of the saints today and that speaking in tongues and the working of sign miracles gradually ceased as the New Testament Scriptures were completed and their authority became established. So that's the big picture of what we believe and teach at this church, two ways of phrasing uh, the same idea, that we believe these miraculous sign gifts have ceased. But let's examine the biblical evidence for this position because uh, a statement is only as good as its biblical support, right? So let's turn to the book of Acts. You can turn to Acts chapter 10 with me and we'll start there today. We want to look at the major instances and general purposes of miraculous sign gifts in the New Testament church. The major instances and the general purposes of miraculous sign gifts in the New Testament church. Let's look at a few of those. In the book of Acts, back in chapter 2, so don't turn there, stay in 10, but in chapter 2, 
At the day, the day of Pentecost, you had the apostles gathered together with others, praying. And at that moment, it was fulfilled what Jesus said, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in languages. They began to speak in other languages. You've got these, uh, this group of people who, as the Holy Spirit came upon them in a supernatural way, they were able to go out and proclaim truths in languages that were real languages, but previously unknown to them. You see in the account in Acts 2, you've got everybody standing around saying, wait, these men are from Galilee. How can we all hear them in our own language? Because many people had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost from different parts of the earth. And they traveled there and they were hearing in their own language a message being preached. That was miraculous. Those men did not take a Rosetta Stone course or anything like that before Pentecost. On the spot, in the moment, they were able to speak in other languages or, as your translation might say, tongues. But this wasn't the only time in the book of Acts that this happened. Look at chapter 10, verse 44. This is when Peter was preaching to a group of Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 2, you have a large group of Jews who are hearing the proclamation in their own language. And now, in chapter 10, Peter is preaching not to Jews but to Gentiles. And it says, starting in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues or languages and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So the same thing happened to the Gentiles as happened to the Jews. When the Holy Spirit came upon them in a special way, they spoke with other languages. Look at the next chapter, book of Acts, chapter 11. Here's Peter summing up that event, starting in verse 15. Peter reporting at Jerusalem what had happened. He's recounting the story, and he says, or chapter 11, verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So we see quite clearly in these instances, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 11, that the speaking with other languages, the special manifestation of the Holy Spirit through certain believers was a sign. It was a sign. It was a signal to something. At a basic level, we see a sign that someone had received the Holy Spirit. Peter's making the connection. The same thing is happening to them when they believed that happened to us, Jews, when we believed. He's saying it was a sign that they had received the Holy Spirit. They possessed the Holy Spirit. But it's also a sign that the church was going beyond the Jews, that the church that Jesus Christ was building wasn't just for the Jews, but for every tribe and tongue and nation, every language. In a way, it was a sign of judgment against Israel. We aren't worshiping here today in a Hebrew church, are we? But we're worshiping together as a church that is made up of 
every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so it was a sign that they had received the Holy Spirit, but also a sign to the Jews that God has now gone to the world to build His church. It was a sign in at least those two ways. As you look through the book of Acts, there are various places, as I'm sure you know, where miracles are done, and miracles to all kinds of degrees and all kinds of instances, some that are just like the gifts that the early church had, where you would see instances of tongues or prophecy or something like that, but also some very extraordinary miracles. That's what Luke says about some of these. They were extraordinary. And we see that in Ephesus. When Paul was in Ephesus in chapter 19, it says that God was doing such a work through Paul that even the hankies that he used and the aprons that he had would be taken from him and given to the sick, and they would be healed by having those, by possessing those. Now, that's extraordinary, isn't it? That's quite something. You think of Paul when he was at the island of Malta at the end of the book of Acts, and that viper came out and grabbed his arm, grabbed hold of his arm. And the islanders there were looking at that saying, we weren't really sure about Paul, and now we know he must be a wicked guy because, look, the, the gods have sent this viper to kill him. And yet, he was totally fine. He shook it off, and he was absolutely fine. And we see through these events, through these miracles in the book of Acts, that they were being verified, the apostles were being verified as mouthpieces of God as those who had the authority to speak from God, to write Scripture, to instruct the church. They were verifying the role that the apostles and prophets had. We see miraculous sign gifts mentioned in the New Testament letters, too, as you leave the book of Acts and you read through your New Testament. You see small instances. In fact, I think all but one instance are quite small where they're mentioned, but you still have them there. In 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Paul says, don't despise prophetic utterances. It's a very short sentence, and that's all you have. What are prophetic utterances? Well, you've got to define that somehow. It seems that he's speaking to the miraculous gift of God to speak through his people. Uh, for, that's 1 Thessalonians 5. In Romans 12, Paul is listing off spiritual gifts, and one of those spiritual gifts is prophecy. Okay, so you've got it showing up again there. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul is writing to this young pastor, Timothy, and he reminds him of the prophecies made about him. There were prophecies that were made about Timothy that he was to remember. So again, just another small mention. But then you have this big section that we're coming upon, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, where there's a lot of instruction given, a lot of explanation given about these gifts, and we'll get back into that starting next week. But that's a general overview of where we see miraculous sign gifts mentioned in the New Testament church. It appears as though these gifts were distributed to members of the church to be exercised in the fellowship. We see in 1 Corinthians, for example, we'll get to this eventually, it's chapter 14, even the end of chapter 14, we see that Paul writes to them and says, when someone wants to prophesy in the church, let two or three speak. Let two or three of the prophets speak, he says. So at least in the church in Corinth, there were enough prophets for Paul to say, limit it to two or three at a time. Well, that's pretty significant. Sounds to me like that gift of prophecy was probably pretty wide, widely distributed in the early church. And there were some gifts that were assigned to unbelievers as well as believers. Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians that the gift of tongues was assigned to unbelievers when they come in to the fellowship. These gifts had to do with revelation and teaching, God giving new revelation and God bolstering the teaching of the church, and so we'll get into those details in the coming weeks. But what's interesting about 
prophecy and other revelation that was given in the early church is that all of that new revelation was absolutely in subjection to what was being written of the New Testament at that time. You don't have to turn there, but this is from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 37 and 38. Look at what Paul says about prophecies. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, and stop right there, at this time in that church, people had the gift of prophecy and were prophesying. Okay, So this was not like a theoretical situation that couldn't happen. This was really happening. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So even from the earliest stages of the church, before the completion of the New Testament, you had the Word of God being written by the apostles as the check on prophets. Prophets were not allowed to exceed what is written in the Word of God or contradict what is written in the Word of God, but they had to be in full alignment and coordination with the Word of God. Prophets were not of equal authority with the apostles. So no prophet could come along in that early church and say, yeah, I know Paul said this, but let me actually correct Paul a bit and give you a fuller teaching. Paul says, no, what I write to you is the Lord's commandment, and if anyone rejects that, well, reject him. The apostles had the authority over even the prophets. So that's important to know. And that's the major instances and general purposes of miraculous sign gifts in the New Testament church. But I want us now to walk through, and this is the the meat of the sermon here today, how God used miraculous sign gifts in His program and why we believe they faded. Why we believe they have ceased to be now in the church that we're in today. With your bulletin, you received, hopefully, a little handout. It's based on a sermon by Tom Pennington, Seven Reasons Why We Believe the Miraculous Sign Gifts Have Ceased, or Seven Reasons for Cessationism. I can't remember what it's titled. There will be some overlap with that document today, uh, but save that for later, okay? I'm not following that outline. I have my own outline, and I've got reasons that are similar and perhaps a bit different than his, but check that out later. I want to start with, as we, be, as we talk about why we believe these gifts have faded, I want to talk about the unique office of apostle with its unique signs that confirmed their message. So first is the unique office of the apostle and its unique signs. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, again, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 10, 1, Jesus commissioned His 12 disciples this way. It says, He summoned His 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So we see right then and there, pretty early on in the New Testament, Matthew 10, this joining together of being a disciple or an apostle of Jesus Christ with the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. He gave them, from the get-go there, the authority to cast out demons and to heal people. Jesus equipped His apostles with distinct signs. These signs were to show people that they were, in fact, from God, that they were apostles of Christ. And He says later on in that same chapter, He who receives you receives me. So there was an indication to those who were being healed, an indication to those who were the beneficiaries of their ability to perform these signs, an indication that they were to believe in Christ. If they received the apostles, then they were receiving Christ. And those signs were to prove that they were who they said they were. Now, if you're still in the book of Acts, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, because something that we see in the book of Acts is that Luke quite often ties together the working of signs and wonders with the apostles themselves. 
Not just that any Christian anywhere at any time could perform such miracles, but Luke makes a specific point that these were done by the apostles. Luke, or, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 43, the end of the chapter, Luke documents this for us. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. See, he specifies through the apostles. Turn to chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. You get the same idea when Luke writes, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Again, it was at the hands of the apostles. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 12 of that chapter. Acts 15, 12. Paul and Barnabas reporting from their missionary journeys. It says, All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Luke isn't saying that Paul and Barnabas were reporting all these signs and wonders that everybody was doing all the time. You listen to some more uh, charismatic-leaning preachers, and you kind of get that sense that they believe that all over the Bible, everybody was doing miracles all the time. But if you just read the Bible, particularly the book of Acts, and see the narrative and just read the words in plain English, you really don't catch that kind of sense. But God was doing something specific through specific people. So specific that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, you don't have to turn there either, but in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There were distinct signs for a man who held the office of apostle, and it was the ability to perform signs, wonders, and miracles. If you weren't performing signs, wonders, and miracles, you weren't an apostle. Those were the signs of an apostle, Paul said. These signs and wonders didn't exist apart from the office of apostle. But because of the office of apostle, these signs and wonders did exist. Now, again, they, the performance of these things wasn't limited to the apostles themselves. Paul's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and he's telling them, just lay people in the church, how they are to go about speaking in tongues, how they are to go about prophesying. However, even though some others practiced these gifts and were given these gifts, it was all toward the same end of confirming the message of the apostles. Why were they performing these gifts? Well, they were still signs. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. These were signs. And they were signs to confirm the message of the gospel. It was a new message of that day that Jesus had just come. He had died and rose again. And they were confirming what God had recently done in their midst. And they were showing the Spirit in a special way in that early church, confirming the message of the gospel and the message of the apostles as they instructed the church. So the first reason why we believe they faded is the unique office of apostle with its unique signs. And the second reason is the fading away of the unique signs with the fading away of the apostles. And we can see this in Scripture. God's giving of apostles to the church and the signs that came with apostles, that was not toward the end of setting up some organization in the church that was to last forever. It was toward the end of building the church in the way that Jesus desired to build His church early on in the first century. 
And we see that the apostles and prophets were actually foundational to the church. They are not ongoing for the church. Apostles and prophets constitute the foundation of the church. They don't constitute the ongoing structure of the church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn forward to the book of Ephesians. We'll look at a few verses here, starting in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 19. This is, again, the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in the city of Ephesus. And he says to them, starting in verse 19, "'You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household.'" Amen. Verse 20, "'Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone.'" The foundation that the church is built on is the apostles and prophets. Now, those of you who have ever constructed much of anything, you know you just need one foundation, unless it's really bad. (laughs) Then you might have to reverse everything and try again. But in His building of His church, Jesus laid a great foundation, a perfect foundation of the apostles and prophets, a foundation that never needs to be laid again. And that's a principle we get from Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 3. He doesn't need to lay a foundation other than that one which is already laid. And he was talking about something else, but that's the principle that we can apply to this. There's only one foundation that needs to be laid, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These New Testament offices were foundational to the church. The church is built upon this. So this verse, in saying that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, it's actually anticipating a change. There's a change anticipated in this very verse saying that the apostles and prophets are foundational, and that the church will continue to be built, but it's only built on one foundation. The foundation doesn't need to keep going. Look at chapter 4 of the same book with me, Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11. We'll look at verses 11 and 12. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, gave to His church, He's referencing here, some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. From the beginning, Jesus was issuing gifts to His church, starting with apostles, and then prophets, and then evangelists, and then pastor-teachers. And prophets, as we already noted, were reliant on the apostles. They weren't able to go outside of the apostles' authority. They were limited by the commandments that were brought through the apostles. But I see here a connection of reliancy where the prophets were reliant on the apostles. They were to pay attention to the Lord's commandments spoken through the apostles. And I see that the evangelists were reliant on the apostles and prophets. What was the message that they were to take out to the world? Well, the message that was relayed to them through the apostles and prophets. And of course, pastors and teachers, well, who are they going to shepherd and who are they going to teach if the evangelists don't go out and win people to Christ, right? And so there's a reliance that flows through this chain, but the apostles and prophets together had a joint role in providing for the church, providing revelation for that early church, and everyone was reliant on each other in different ways. 
And then Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, I've got several other verses. If you want to flip to these, you can. They should be on the screen. But uh, Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, I think is just another critical text in understanding how this worked as the church was being built and maturing through the first century. This is what Andy read for us at the beginning. The author of Hebrews asks, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And now I want you to see in the next sentence, three generations of people. First, it says, after it was the, at the first, spoken through the Lord. That's the first generation, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking His gospel message. Generation number one. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. And we'll stop there. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So us, we are not in the same generation as the Lord. There's actually a generation in between even. Those who heard the message from the Lord confirmed that message from the Lord to us. You see three generations there? And how did they confirm that message? Verse 4, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. I think this is just the strongest. If you could pick one passage, I think this is it. The strongest passage of the purpose of miraculous sign gifts. They were confirming to the next generation and even those who were to follow the message of the Lord Jesus Christ by signs, by wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, which gifts? All gifts? No. (laughs) There are certain gifts that, of course, continue on. God is still gifting His church. But there are, are particular gifts that fit that category of signs and wonders and various miracles that were confirmatory to the early church as they heard the message. That was the purpose of those gifts, to confirm the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets, And the offices of apostles and prophets began to cease. The signs began to cease. The works of the apostles and the works of the prophets also began to cease with those offices. And we can see this in another way throughout the New Testament. Uh, You know, I mentioned earlier the apostle Paul with his aprons and his handkerchiefs that he touched, those would go out and heal people. And the viper, I mean, those were just amazing (laughs) that God would do that, perform such extraordinary miracles. But then we see, as Paul got older, toward the end of Paul's life, fewer and fewer signs being performed, whether that was due to inability or uh, with God restraining that ability, or if it was just Paul not doing it, but we see it. There's an example in Philippians 2 where Paul talks about Epaphroditus. That's a hard name to write. Maybe you just want (laughs) to abbreviate that one for your notes. But a man named Epaphroditus Paul said he was sick. He was on his deathbed, but God had mercy on him, and He had mercy on me too, Paul said. Paul didn't say that I healed him. Paul didn't say I gave him one of my aprons and he was healed, but Epaphroditus was at his deathbed. Paul apparently unable to reverse that until God stepped in and had mercy. This is a pretty well-known verse, but it's 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul writing to Timothy toward the end of his life, toward the end of Paul's life, He says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy had stomach issues. Anybody relate to that? (laughs) And frequent ailments. Paul's solution wasn't, I've sent this letter with one of my handkerchiefs. That wasn't Paul's solution. He says, yeah, let's try a natural drink some wine. Okay, drink some wine. And then this one, which I believe is just 
amazing, 2 Timothy. This is at the very end of Paul's life. It's the last letter he wrote. It's the last chapter he wrote, some of the last verses he wrote. Paul said, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of this man. (laughs) Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Trophimus was a fellow worker in the gospel, someone who served alongside Paul. If Paul was to heal anybody, shouldn't it be a servant of the gospel that he could continue to go forth without his sicknesses? He says, I left him sick. So we see instances of no healing as time goes on in the New Testament. Again, whether that's due to inability or whatever it may be, it appears as though those signs and wonders had began to cease, even in the life of Paul. Thirdly, a third reason why I believe these gifts have ceased, why we teach that they have ceased, is the sufficient authority of the completed Scripture. We believe in a doctrine that's called sola scriptura, that we base all that we believe on the written Word of God, and that we have in the 66 books of the Bible the sufficient authority from God that we need for all of life and godliness, all of it, all of life and godliness found in the Word of God. In fact, one of our core values, uh, I guess it's over here, we study the Bible because it is the whole counsel of God. Whole counsel. Not most counsel. Whole counsel of God. After Revelation's last amen was penned, it was the last letter written in the New Testament, after that last in came off of of, uh, John's pen, sola scriptura, that doctrine was there for us because it was complete. The whole canon of Scripture was complete. That means that God no longer inspires people in the way that He inspired the writers of Scripture. It means that we are in no need of any apostolic or prophetic work. We are in no need of it because we believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture that's been given to us. And if we believe sufficiency to mean sufficiency... That means there is nothing else that we need to supplement the Word of God. Now, there were times in ages past when Scripture was being written before the completion of the canon that God had given prophetic words to His people for His people to supplement what they had that was already written. But after, the again, the last amen was written in the book of Revelation, we were given the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the Scriptures were complete. Let me show you a couple of verses from the Bible, about the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, you know these verses well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, we have to ask the question, what did Paul mean at the beginning of that when he said all Scripture? He couldn't have meant the stuff that was going to be written after because he says all Scripture that we have right now is adequate, okay? It's sufficient. Um, There, of course, is a sense in which he was writing about Scripture before Scripture was uh, was done being written. And so we see from this, at the very least, the nature of Scripture to equip the believer. And in every age, whether that was while Scripture was still being written or in our age today, God has given us all that we need to live for Him. God never left a generation hanging. He never left a generation out saying, well, you could use a lot more, but uh, now's not the time. 
Uh, There's more that I could give you so that you could live for me, but I'm just not going to do that yet. God gave every generation exactly what they needed to live for Him, to know Him, and to serve Him rightly. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the author, could have been Paul, could have been someone else, says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and he goes on to say, in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But there's a recognition in that first verse that in times past, God did things in a different way with His revelation. He spoke through the prophets and in many various ways and in different portions. While God was still revealing, He was communicating to man in a way that was unique for that period. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And it's important to see how Jesus' finished work moves us toward the doctrine of sola scriptura. This is important for you to grasp. How does the incarnation of the Son of God and His completed work on the earth lead us directly to this idea that revelation has ceased? Well, there's a, there's a connection there, and you would do well to see this. Because in the Old Testament, those prophets who were moved along by God, they were grasping after the Messiah who was to come. They didn't know all the details. We talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning. They didn't see the big picture and all the details that we see because we live on this side of the cross and on this side of the New Testament. So they were grasping after things that were not yet completed. Yet in the New Testament, what are the apostles and prophets talking about in the New Testament? Something that's behind them. They're explaining and applying the finished work of Christ. They're not grasping after details and looking forward to something that hasn't happened yet. They're explaining something that's already happened, something that for them was in their past. They were explaining Christ Himself in their letters. So you can think of in the Gospels, this is John 14, 26, Jesus talking to His apostles, and He said, "'The Helper, the Holy Spirit,' Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So his apostles, as they went on to write Scripture, they were having brought to their remembrance by the Holy Spirit what Jesus had taught. And that was the basis for what they were writing. The completed work, the completed teaching of Christ being relayed through the apostles and prophets. In chapter 16 of John, verse 13 Jesus said to His apostles, when He, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. So they were given a special promise that they were going to be uh, spoken to by the Holy Spirit, and He was going to reveal to them not only the things that they couldn't remember from what they heard from Jesus, but what is to come. And we see that in the letters from Paul and from John. You think of the book of Revelation, it was a lot about what is to come. But that was the scope of their ministry, their Scripture writing ministry, by the power of the Holy Spirit that was unique to them. Now let me give you just quick, a few more quick things that are more logical and anecdotal points as to why I believe these gifts, miraculous sign gifts, have ceased. When we think of the gift of prophecy, the miraculous sign gift of prophecy, there's no true Christian out there today who's actually claiming actual prophecy. Um, That's perhaps a big statement to make. (laughs) There are brothers and sisters that we have in our Christian family who believe that 
The gift of prophecy is still operative in the church today, but what they define as prophecy isn't really prophecy. They've changed the definition, and that has let them get away with saying that prophecy is still going on today. Because what is true prophecy? What is prophecy in the New Testament? In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul says the word over and over again. Well, what is it? Well, prophecy is a message from God, direct revelation from God for the people of God. Direct revelation from God for the people of God. And you will not come across a true Christian today who will come out and say, I've received a message from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, you are all to listen to obey. This is the Lord's commandment, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14. If, that, if you encounter a person who says that, you know immediately, don't listen. As, as soon as they say, listen to me, this is what God says for you to obey, stop listening. Unless it's based on the written Word of God. If it's new revelation, and He's saying this is something new to add to your Scriptures, reject it. That's what prophecy was. It was supplementing what they had with the Word of God before the completion of the Word of God. We no longer need a supplement. Reject it. Another point is that the miracles of the apostles have clearly faded. Think about the nature of the miracles that were done by the apostles. Just healing, for example. It was always spontaneous and instant and full and complete. When they would come along and heal somebody, it would be spontaneous to everybody in the moment. God had ordained it, but for the people involved, it was quite spontaneous. They would put their hands on somebody or heal them with a spoken word. In an instant, they were healed. In an instant. And it was a complete healing. It wasn't what you see on some popular YouTube videos and things today where someone says, eh, I've got this back issue because one of my legs is two inches longer than the other. And so they say, okay, sit down. And then they, you know, yank on their legs and now they're fine. That is not what we see in the New Testament. What we see in the New Testament is spontaneous, instant, total healing. And it's a special gift from God that resulted in an undeniable healing. Today's healings that people claim through the hands of some anointed man who might call himself an apostle or something like that, they're very uh, disputable, <laughs> all right? Uh, they're very disputable. I was just seeing a clip from Kenneth Copeland last month. Kenneth Copeland, who I don't understand how anybody still supports his ministry, but they do, he, he's the one who came out and said, well, COVID is going to end after X number of days, and they're calling and invoking the name of the Lord against COVID and against all these things, and he, uh, I think he was one of the many so-called prophets last year who came out and said Trump was going to win the election, on and on and on it goes. I don't know how anybody still listens to Kenneth Copeland, but people do. But someone shared a clip of him from one of his healing ministries last month, a big conference, and a guy in a wheelchair there wanted to be healed, and he boop, bopped him on the head as they always do and tipped over in his wheelchair. And there he is on the ground, and of course it was awkward, that wasn't supposed to happen. And so everyone's kind of standing around, and Kenneth Copeland, like all the other false teachers, they always have these henchmen standing around, and so they're all kind of looking at him, and Kenneth Copeland finally says, well, pick him up, pick him up, he's fine, he's fine, uh, you know, the, the Lord's all over him, he's fine. Guess what? He stayed in his wheelchair. He didn't get up and walk like you see in the miracles of the New Testament. Those miracles have clearly ceased. Another thought, the revelatory sign gift of tongues has faded. Tongues was not some 
ecstatic speech that was just blurted out that was gibberish. These were languages spoken. And there are many missionaries who have gone to foreign lands who wish that this gift hasn't ceased because they've had to put in a lot of work to learn a language. Sure would be nice if they had that gift and they could just go and speak in that language. But that gift has also ceased. What you see today of the gift of tongues is counterfeit, where people want to stand up and speak in gibberish. That's just counterfeit. That's not what the gift of tongues is. And lastly, I would want to know this too from our more charismatic-leaning neighbors. How is church history accounted for with its lack of apostles and its lack of signs of apostles? You'll see oftentimes in these charismatic ministries, they'll talk about restoring the church. It's a restoration movement a lot of times when they're talking about invoking these first century miraculous sign gifts. They need to restore the church. Well, that means that the church was broken. There was some sort of apostasy in the church. Is that what we believe? No, that's not what we believe. Jesus has built His church and the gates of hell have not been able to stand against it. So it's not like Jesus failed to build His church, that hell has won, and now we're restoring it. That's not the message of God as we see in Scripture, but that's what many charismatic movements claim. And let me give you a final word just evaluating the modern charismatic movement and give you a warning. The majority of what we see in the modern charismatic movement, the vast majority I'd even say, is non-Christian self-worship. It's absolutely non-Christian and it's a worship of self. You see over and over again in these types of conferences and all the crazy stuff they do on the late night TV programs, so much of an exaltation of self, so much much of an exaltation of your own will than pointing people to Christ. And this really is the main issue. In these types of ministries, you don't see people magnifying Christ, magnifying the work of the gospel, pointing to the finished work of Jesus and lifting up our King. But it's all about, you've had a foot problem for three years? Well, let's see how you can escape that foot problem. What is that? That's selfish. That's self-worship. That's being consumed by your own problems instead of pursuing the will of God. You'll maybe never hear these teachers say, God might not want to heal you. But you see in the Scriptures where He refused to heal many people. He refused to give an escape for certain people with their problems based on His will because what He wills is best. You want a prime example? Jesus Christ in the garden praying if there's a way. Nevertheless, not my will, then your will be done. Jesus, the Son of God, endured more hardship than we can ever imagine. And if there was ever one worthy to escape such hardship, it would be Jesus Christ. And yet, it was God's will that He endured it. And there's a minority out there of Christ-exalting brothers and sisters who are more charismatic, and I do appreciate them in many ways, but I disagree with them on this issue. Their their description, definition, use of such gifts, I don't think is in line with the way we see it in the New Testament. We just disagree on this. But they still, nevertheless, seek to exalt Christ in their lives, and there's things that we can learn from them. But I want to warn you that the vast majority of the charismatic movement 
as you look at it, should be rejected as counterfeit Christianity and self-worship. Now, let me give you a few pastoral warnings as we wrap up, because I don't want to push you into the other side of the ditch, or the other side of the road, the other ditch. Hopefully, keeping you away from the charismatic nonsense that we live with today, but also not pushing you into a uh, humanistic ditch, okay? First thing I want to tell you, four warnings I want to give you. The first one, do not live as though the supernatural has ceased. Do not live as though the miraculous has ceased. Because our definition today for cessationism, this doctrine, uh, which is actually, it kind of puts us at a disadvantage because it's a negative doctrine. We're explaining why we don't believe in something, which is always kind of puts you at a, at a loss from the get-go. But this doctrine is the belief that the Holy Spirit has ceased distributing these gifts to His church. It's not the belief that the Holy Spirit has ceased doing the miraculous or that God is uninvolved. I'm not up here saying, well, we're basically just deists, God's hands off in the world. That is not what we believe. That is not the doctrine of cessationism. It's not the ceasing of miracles, but it's the ceasing of miraculous sign gifts distributed to believers. And that's a very important distinction. And when you think about it, we have a roaring testimony to the miraculous by encountering and being with saved souls among us, don't we? Every saved soul is a testimony to the miraculous, God's work in this world. So that's warning number one. Warning number two, don't be numb to the spiritual reality of your life. Don't be numb to the spiritual reality of your life. I was recently struck by Ephesians 6, reading the whole armor of God passage. And as it gets toward the end of describing the armor that we're to put on as Christians, it talks about our shield. And we need to have a shield, it says, because there are flaming darts sent our way from the enemy. We have a spiritual enemy who is actively seeking to hurt us. We have a spiritual enemy who is actively seeking to harm us and hinder us in the Christian life. And the shield that protects us from his flaming darts is the shield of faith. So don't be numb to the spiritual reality of your life as you walk by faith and not by sight. We are to pray in the Spirit without doubting, we're told in Scripture. And we are to do battle in this life. If you're a Christian here today, this is your reality. Do battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this world, the invisible forces. Third warning, don't reject the strength and power that the Spirit is offering. Don't reject the strength and power that the Holy Spirit is offering. We are to pursue God in this life in submission to Him, in submission to the Spirit. Again, cessationism isn't the belief that the Holy Spirit has ceased. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit was active in the first century and now He's gone. Now He's done. That's not what we believe. We are still indwelt by the Spirit, aren't we? We are still empowered by the Holy Spirit. He still illumines Scripture. That's one of His ministries. As we read the Word of God, He, being the divine author of the Word of God, is our divine teacher as we study. He illumines our minds. He baptizes us. He brings fruit through our lives. All of these are still active ministries of the Holy Spirit. 
So don't reject the strength and the power that He is offering as He is in us working, seeking to bear fruit in every good work. That's the third warning. And a fourth, don't deny the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. Don't deny the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. We do not believe the Holy Spirit is some obscure force. He is a person. He's not an it. He is a he. He's a person. So as we get to know God, as we learn about our Savior Jesus Christ, there's a person indwelling us, the person of the Holy Spirit. He ministers to us personally. He comforts you personally, doesn't He? Not just generally He comforts all Christians, but you personally in your context with what you're dealing with, He's comforting you. Flip side of that, He's convicting you, isn't He? In your context with what you're dealing with, knowing what you're going through, knowing what you've done, He's also convicting you. He's leading you. He's guiding you. He's directing and imparting wisdom to you in your life, in your circumstances. And getting into how all that works, we may never know. But nevertheless, it's true. He is doing that in your life. He is a gift to the church, and He is also a gift to you personally. Many people are, are scared of the Holy Spirit because He is so personal. But lean into that. Don't run away from that. Lean into that reality that you today, Christian, have God. You have God. And He is working in your life in miraculous ways, isn't He? He is doing amazing and awesome wonders in your life, isn't He? Hold on to that. Don't run away from it. Father, we thank You again for Your Word and for Your work that You have left Your Spirit till the work on earth is done. And we thank You that we have the testimony of Your perfect Word, Your complete Word, Your sufficient Word. As You, in our lives, guide us into the truth and apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask that You would give us more insight into this great mystery as we walk around perceiving the world around us with spiritual lenses, not being numb to this spiritual reality, but leaning into it by your power, by your strength, by your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.